This is Secrets to Win Big, your roadmap to sustained growth. Brought to you by Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, brand whisperer, top brand growth driver, and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. Find him at zenmango.com. And now, here's your host, Arjun Sen. Welcome to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. Hi, this is Arjun. And at Secrets to Win Big, I bring you leaders from all walks of life, from all over the world. Each one of us are different, which means our path to winning big cannot be the same. I love to win, winning is fun, but I've always found that winning big really puts you on the path for sustainable long-term win. And that really gets me excited. In that spirit today, it's really an honor to present and in front of you, Arjun Malhotra. First, I want to share his incredible professional success, but then I also want to add a few lines about this incredible human being, how he has been a great mentor to so many of us around the world. Arjun is a pioneer of the Indian IT industry who grew a six-person garage operation. And yes, I will go into that, how, what it feels like to build from there to one of the largest information technology corporations in India and in US. He served as chairman of Headstrong's board of directors before its acquisition by Centra uh, in May 2011. And then after that, he has been CEO and chairman for TechSpan, which where he emerged when it merged with Headstrong on October 2003. Now, this is the part where Arjun talked, we talk about the six person garage. That's where it started as a true startup. And again, you need to look at the timing, 1975. That's the when time he founded, co-founded HCL. And he took it through three phases. One was the co-founding phase. Then in 1989, he took over HCL's US operations, which is now known as HCL Technologies, and grew it to 100 million annual revenue in 1997. Again, do a translation in your mind that puts in perspective the magnitude of that impact. He ran the HCL HP joint venture in India and in 1996 set up and ran the joint venture with Deluxe Corporation. So Arjun went to the same university I hold very close to me, Indian Institute of Technology, Kharagpur. And Arjun's wisdom, I want to bring an example before we start. I was running a newsletter when I asked Arjun for a very simple interview, and it was a very routine question. The routine question I always ask somebody is, what's the one thing that you learned most, really kept with you in the university, in IIT Kharagpur? Arjun's answer has been the most unique ever that I still hold on to that after 15 years. He said, in IIT Kharagpur, I learned how to work with people smarter than me. Think for a second, how priceless is that wisdom? So today you all are in for an amazing treat as I welcome Arjun Malhotra, sir, welcome. Thank you, thank you, Arjun. I mean, that, that's a very kind introduction. Thank you very much. So Arjun, I really want to go right away to HCL days. Okay, you were literally six people in a garage operation 
So just take us back to that time. What was the feeling to be part of the setup? The startup. Yeah. You know, to tell you how we got there, I think I'll take a few minutes. What basically happened was all of us were working for a large corporation in India called the Delhi Cloth and General Mills Company Limited, DCM. They were a conglomerate in multiple things, cloth, uh, food products, chemicals, rear tire cord. And they decided to get into electronics when I joined them. Actually, I joined them in 1970 as a senior manager training. In 71, they decided to get into electronics. And I got pushed into a national role one year out of college, which was, you know, by itself a, a bit of a shock, but uh, exciting. Uh, India was a socialist country, and we had an act called the Monopolies and Restrictive Trade Practices Act. And DCM being, I think, the fourth largest company in the country, public company in the country at that time, uh, with, uh, with, uh, in terms of revenue. Uh, when we moved from programmable calculators to making our own computers, their internal advice from their legal department was that you will go afoul of that act and that, uh, you know, we were a small part of the company. And so they decided not to go into computers. Mm -hmm. Now, we felt very strongly that microprocessors, which had just, or were just coming out at that time, were going to change the world. And so very simply, you know, six of us decided that we'll leave and make our own computer using leveraging microprocessors. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got to tell you, at that time, no business plan, no money, right? We just felt we knew the market because we had, in a way, created it. We had 80% of the market was with DCM for calculators. And we had a very strong development group. And so basically, that's we quit to leverage microprocessors to change the world. That was really our, we had nothing, you know, other than, yes, confidence that we knew the market, confidence that we could generate money, by manufacturing calculators and uh, then invest that in developing computers. That was the basis on which we did. We had, my grandmother gave us a Bursati, and if you know what a Bursati is in India, you're allowed to construct two floors and half a floor on top. And that half floor on top is called a Bursati. And uh, so we started in my grandmother's Bursati, basically mm -hmm. because she gave it to us free and it was in a, it was in a you know, good location. And so that's really how the company started. Lots of uh, enthusiasm, uh, lots of, you know, change the world. Uh, in those days, everyone thought we were on pot or something. Mm -hmm. but yeah, that's basically how it happened. Amazing. So when you started, you know, amazing team, you had the experience, you knew the industry. And of course, you had your grandmother's support and blessings, which of course is very important. What were some of the key drivers that puts HCL from there to be one of India's largest, you know, information technology corporations. And I would say one of India's first big successes that opened the path for a lot of brands in future. So again, a slightly long answer to that question. Uh, I've got to describe the background a little bit. See, India, most, uh, the taxation rate in India was very high. It was about 70% for individuals. And then there were some additional surcharges on that. Basically, the whole idea of uh, starting a company was that you had a little flexibility in terms of your expense account. That's how most people started. And uh, there was, and India still has, and lots of developing countries still have the problem of what they call black money, or the underground economy, where people don't pay tax. Uh, and so there's a lot of cash floating around, basically. 
we decided in HCL that we would run a professional company. There were six of us. We were posted in different parts of the country. At that time, it was easy to take that decision because there was no cash. And so we said, let's run a professional company. Let's get very strong audit so that we make sure that everything is, you know, uh, clean and transparent. And once the company started doing well, we and we got good people, we realized that they worked for us because they felt that the company was transparent and had a culture that, you know, was in that particular way. And so that's how we kept the company. And in a way, it's, I think that's been our biggest, uh, how should I put it, our biggest contribution to India is that the IT industry grew as a transparent, professional, competent industry. And, you know, people were able to create wealth on the stock exchange, basically by running industries of that kind. And that has changed the entire mindset in this country on how businesses should be run. So I think, you know, to us, to me, looking back, that's probably a big, that is one. The other thing we did was all of us came from a middle-class background. None of our families had ever done business before or even run a company or anything like that. And so I think what we were able to do over a period of time, not just us, there were other companies that came up too, but we were able to break that glass ceiling, that whole middle-class concept that I need a secure job, I need to make sure I get into a job where I'm secure, and people started taking the risk and becoming entrepreneurs. And I think you can see the impact of that in India today. So I just want to go to a totally different direction because something you said really struck a chord with me. I too grew up without seeing anybody in the family start a business. And a lot of us, when we tried to become entrepreneurs, somehow we get addicted to the so-called secure check every month. So what's your advice to somebody who has not have a role model in entrepreneurism before they start? What would be some advice you have for them, please? So the first thing is, I always tell people, don't become an entrepreneur if your objective, sole objective, or largely your objective is to make money. If you do it for that reason, you'll probably never make money. You've got to become an entrepreneur. Or you've got to do something where you have passion. You want to change the world. You want to make a difference in some way. And once you do that, your passion carries you through. Your passion makes your mindset that nothing is impossible. You know, you can make it happen. And let me put it this way, whether you create wealth for yourself or not, it does give you a lot of satisfaction and, and you're happy. And I think ultimately, you know, why do people do this is because they want to be happy. And of course, you want to be economically comfortable. Uh, but, you know, I just passion. I think passion is the most important thing. And you want to change the world in some way. That's when you should become an entrepreneur. And then it doesn't matter whether you've done it in the family or you don't, haven't got it. You will find a way. Uh, and it's your own conviction that you've got to follow. I love that. And if you're joining in late, you're listening to Arjun Malhotra. And Arjun was just talking about to be an entrepreneur, don't start it. Don't go on the journey if all you want is to make money because it doesn't work that way. He just broke it down into very clearly one, find a passion, why you're doing it, and the passion will carry you through and you'll have amazing satisfaction. But the one line, Arjun, you, really, you said really hit home was your passion will help you find the way, which I really think is incredible. 
Sergeant, if you have to go back, and I'll ask the question, I flip the question by saying, a lot of things, of course, you can change, times have changed. What would be one thing you would never change? Like six of you have to do it again. What would one thing you would not change, like exactly the same way again? You know, I'd do it exactly the same way. I would. I, I really think uh, uh, the six of us stayed together for 19 years, you know, uh, before people split out and decided that they'd made enough money or whatever and they wanted to do something on their own or do whatever they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I think I wouldn't change that. I think uh, uh, I, I think the other piece of uh, that I wouldn't change was the fact that our families got along with each other. Mm-hmm. So the spouses were friends and that made a lot of problems that could have come up get taken care of because you know, uh, you'd come home and your wife would tell you, you know, yeah, why you just, you know, when you get into a problem, you tend to look at it just the way you want to look at it. You tend not to see the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very difficult, you know, because you're emotionally upset about something. Mm-hmm. But if you if you come home and you talk to your wife and she sort of uh, gets you in the frame of mind where you look at it uh, a little more holistically, you mm-hmm. find a lot of times that there is an answer, there is a solution. It's not a very difficult solution. And I think yeah, I think that worked really well for us. So I would tell people that if you're starting, first of all, if you're starting something, it's very difficult to do it alone. I mean, the press likes to report every company because it's easy to associate it, every company with one individual. But ultimately, a company is made up of a number of people who contribute, mm-hmm. a lot of them more than that individual who they see in some ways. But it's very important that, you know, you, you work with a team and you actually set the culture. In fact, you know, starting a company is like growing a baby. It's when you have a child in the first six, seven years, you actually define the value system for the child. A company, in my view, is exactly the same. And you have to spend that time when you have the time to spend with people to put in the value system, because as the company grows, you, your problems are people problems. They take over most of your life. It's not, I mean, yes, of course, strategy and stuff like that, budgets, and they come in. But most of your time is spent on handling people, motivating people to do things. And if they have imbibed your the culture you want to set, then they put it down to the people who report to them where they can spend a lot more time. And so I think that's probably the most important. They get a great team, as you mentioned earlier, I always say try and recruit people who are smarter than you and then please listen to them because Mm -hmm. if you recruit smart people and don't listen to them, they're going to leave. And so I think that's one way to make the company successful. So you already touched on this, but I just want to hit on that one more time is six of you being together for 19 years. It's, It's an amazing accomplishment by itself. What was, you know, you talked about families being connected. What were some of the key things for people, a core team to be together for this long to put the brand on a long-term win? So, you know, we had some pretty simple ground rules in the sense that, you know, HCL is probably one company, but there were four or five companies. There was a reprographics company called Hindustan Reprographics. There was Hindustan Telecommunications. There was Hindustan Instruments. And different people were CEOs, although the boards might have been somewhat common. In the company where I was the CEO, I took the decision. I mean, 
the CEO of HCL, uh, the chairman of HCL, I was the vice chairman of HCL. In HCL, you know, the chairman of HCL may have been on my board and say reprographics. If he disagreed with my decision, he could voice it, but ultimately it was my decision. And we followed that uh, discipline. And really, I was a in a way, in HCL, I was a soldier. I could have disagreed in the board, but once we decided something, I did that to the best of my ability. And I never, no one ever went back and said, I told you so in mm -hmm. the decision. And I think that worked very well for us because everyone accepted that they're working in an environment where one person is responsible, he or she is going to take that decision and that they have to live with it no matter what they feel. Yes, some decisions are done democratically, some are done because you know the business better than others and you push your way through and say, this is how I want it done. But that's the way business is run. That's the way companies run. Love that. So after that, Arjun, you come to US and you talked about India and how setting the organization from day one as a transparent professional organization was very important and that not only it helped HCL, but also set the culture for future tech companies and beyond. U.S. was different. So what were some of the unique challenges to grow HCL in U.S.? You know, the first thing is, in India, we never did business on the phone because the phones hardly ever worked. Hmm. So it was always face-to-face. -face. Hmm. And a lot of it was when you're talking to people, their body language and how you do it. Hmm. Second thing was, you know, the legal system in India works, but it's very slow. And so by and large, you never went legal. You tried to sort it out across the table with people. And the third thing is when someone gave their word, it normally, I mean, normally there were people who broke their word, but normally when people gave their word, that's how it worked. And you found a way around it. Coming to the US was completely different. Business was done on the phone. It was just completely alien to someone like me who would come from India. And so there was a lot of adjustment that had to be done. The other thing is in, in India, we speak the Queen's English or the British English. In America, you speak a different, it's American English. Mm -hmm. And some of the words are quite confusing. Like when you call someone and they couldn't get through, you say, hey, uh, the fax was engaged. Now, you know, busy, you've got to say the fax was busy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes trying to explain what you're saying becomes quite a problem. I think looking at that, the other thing was I, I realized in India that we had recruited only from the IITs and the IIMs, mm -hmm. you know, colleges of that kind. So you were used to dealing with very smart people, people, as I said, more intelligent than you. And so when you gave an instruction, you never micro detailed it. You let that person decide and they normally did a pretty good job. In the US, we didn't have the stature to recruit people of that kind. You know, we were a new company, we were unknown, we were an Indian company, they weren't known in India, in the US. And so managing some of my salespeople, especially, we, I had to get down to a micro management level of sort of telling them what to do. And it sort of reminded me of my early days in HCL, where people didn't understand computers. So you had to sort of explain to them and very, you know, in a lot of detail as to how to go about it, what to do it, what would work, what may not work. That was, it wasn't a learning experience, but it was like you sort of thought I'm regressing. Here I'm going back to doing what I did some 14, 15 years ago. 
but yeah, that's the way it was. But then we were able to, you know, they did a good job. A lot of them learned, uh, not all, but a lot of them learned and did a pretty good job. And then, uh, you know, we were able to get some people from India who took a little time to adjust to the U.S. But once they settled down, they're basically smart, good people. They did a good job for us. And that's how we grew at CL America. Love that. So let's move from there to TechSpan. What were some of the key learnings during that phase of your journey that are priceless and you want to share with us, please? So when I left uh, HCL, I left because I wanted to be a part of the internet uh, as it uh, emerged. You know, you wanted to fool around at all the new technologies that were coming in and stuff. HCL by that time had become a public company. And if it had been a private company, I would have still been in HCL because I would have used that whatever investments to try and have fun. Uh, because it was a public company, I thought it wasn't fair that I used public money, so to say, to have fun at, that I wanted to have. Whereas the company's plan was to look at which direction technology was going and then invest heavily behind it so that they, they then become leaders over time. That wasn't fun in my view. So I left and thought I'd do that. Uh, what ended up happening is Goldman Sachs wanted to invest in this industry in India. They wanted someone to help them do industrial due diligence. Mm-hmm. And so I started consulting with them. Uh, we identified a number of targets, but Goldman wanted a quote unquote a squeaky clean company. India had a myriad of laws which were very complicated. I'll give you one example. Under a law called, Fair, uh, I think it was called FERA, Foreign Exchange Regulation Act. If an overseas invoice is outstanding for more than 180 days, you were supposed to take legal action. Technically, if the payment came in the 181st day and you hadn't taken legal action, you were in contravention of that law. Right. And, you know, a lot of companies, there were a whole lot of these laws which crisscrossed with each other. And there was no real company that was completely clean, if I use that term. Uh, So Goldman then, after, after about six months with them, I told them, look, you're wasting my time, you're wasting your time. You're not going to find a squeaky clean company in India. If you want one, why don't you start from some scratch and let's and keep it squeaky clean? Because by that time, the laws had been rationalized a little bit and things were a little easier. So they said, okay, why don't you do it? And so I talked to some other uh, colleagues who left HCL and started their own company, a small company. And I said, why don't you give me a business plan? And you know what happens is when you say Goldman's going to fund it, the business plan looks big. They pulled in some more people. They ended up putting me in. And the model we decided to go after was we felt that the IT services space was taken. There was TCS, there was HCL, there was Wipro, there was uh, Infosys. And we thought, hey, let's not try and become one of them. Let's in fact try and look at what is the, what, where is the market going to go in the next 10 years. And then let's try and set up a company that will actually address what the market needs in that we think the market needs 10 years from and so one of the things we, well, the thing we decided on was that we'll do domain-based consulting. That I won't just do IT. I won't ask someone to give me a spec and I'll write the code, which was really what was happening. I will actually go in and discuss a business problem with the user, come to a solution, and then leverage technology to provide that solution. So I'll be agnostic to technology. I don't care if you want me to do it in C-sharp, C++, or whatever. I will provide you the solution. 
but I will have a business front end. It's exactly what Accenture does in a way today. That's what we thought we'd do. And uh, that's how we started to expand. We actually, uh, over time, realized that we can't do it in four or five segments, which is what, or three segments that we had originally planned. So we focused just on the capital markets, which really was Wall Street. And that's what Headstrong ultimately did. It became a domain consulting company in the capital markets. And, uh, you know, we were seen as, how do I put it? Uh, our main, for, in our largest account, Morgan Stanley, our major competitors were TCS and Capgemini. And we were seen as giving better service to our customers, to Morgan Stanley, than either of them. So while we didn't have the volume they had, we actually had a lot, our bill rates were much higher. We had much more respect from the customer in terms of who we were. So that was the model. The idea was, let me go what I thought would happen 10 years ahead of time because we knew the industry or we thought we knew the industry. In a way, we were wrong. I think we were 10 years too early. I, we sold Genpack to Genpack in 2011. Today, people are talking about domain consulting. Today, when you look at the IT industry in India, you're talking about people are talking about domain knowledge and having people do domain consulting. So I think we were early, but the, the idea was right. And, uh, you know, and no regrets. I think we, we had a lot of fun building Headstrong. So love the phrase that you used was respect. Because to me, many a time as we work in the consulting field, we just forget we are all individual brands. And unless you're earning respect, because that was such a powerful thing, and that takes me to the next section. I just want to go beyond IT. And you have been in incredible, successful leadership for Pan IIT, which is the alumni organization for graduates for all 23 IITs, Thai, and other major nonprofits. So as you go from India, HCL, US, now you are, you know, with Expand and Headstrong. What was the big difference to be a successful leader and making an impact for a nonprofit? You know, ultimately, it's no different to a profit company. You, you have to motivate people. You have to motivate people to do it. You can't do it. I mean, there's only, you can do a limited amount, but you have to motivate people to do it. And so really, uh, two or three things I learned was, uh, when you know, most organizations tend to what we call uh, delegate upwards. If people come to me and say, you know, what do you think we should do? And I always ask them one question. I said, if you want me to give you an answer, then if you follow it, if you want me to tell you what to do, then you might as well give me the problem and I'll do it for you. But if you just want my advice and I'll, what I think you should do, then you can take it or leave it, but the responsibility stays with you. I think that was one thing. And 80% of the time, the people would say, just give me your advice. I will, I take the responsibility for getting this done or whatever it had to be. And that worked good for me, well for me in a way it was good because I, I obviously couldn't do 100% of the work. That 20% too, I had some help and so that So that was one. And people learn that way. And they come in and sort of understand the way you want them to do things, what your thinking is, and then they're able to. Uh, the second thing is, I never ask anyone to do anything that I won't do myself. And so let's say if someone says they can't do it, then I go and do it myself. And I find that most people find it very difficult to say no. 
when they know that that's what will happen. And so, you know, again, it's a question of, uh, you know, just managing people, motivating them. And the third is, you know, a lot of time when people are not doing well, they lose their self-respect. You have to find a way to give people back their self-respect. Once they have that, then they will go out of the way to meet numbers, to do whatever they need to do to keep that self-respect. And so, you know, I've worked with a number of very good people who failed for six, eight months. And then you talk to them and slowly, it took me three or four months, but by the time, if you, if once they get back that self-respect, I think uh, they perform really well. And, you know, and I've seen that happen. So to me, managing is managing people. I think that's the 90% of what managers have to do is to manage people. And how you do it, what you do, how you are able to do it is really the model that you need to follow that's successful for you. What's successful for me may not be successful for someone else. They have to look at their strengths and weaknesses, their team strengths and weaknesses, and then see how to balance that role. So to me, this again is nostalgic because it takes me back to when I took over as Pan IT president, I had come to you and you had given me three pieces of advice. One is Arjun, you cannot do it yourself, motivate people. Secondly, you are here to serve others. And the third was, I really think equally brilliant was, please make sure that there's a clear governance and follow the governance and create that culture. So, and the one thing, again, you talked about all through, you have been talking about great people skills and this one liner that stood out to me in this particular part was, I never asked somebody to do something that I won't do it myself. And I really think that's simply brilliant. So you're listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun. Today, my VIP guest is Arjun Malhotra, a pioneer of Indian IT industry, who literally grew a six-person garage operation to one of the largest information tech corporations in India and US, and that was just the beginning. And in the last section, Arjun also talked about transition from US, from India to US. And he talked about sometimes, you know, for us, we get stuck on simplest of terms or words. Like for example, he talks about line being engaged versus busy. And a particular personal thing, you know, me being an aerospace engineer, you know, aluminum is really big for me. And when I came to this country for the first five years, I kept saying aluminum and people were laughing at me. Finally, when I realized somebody had written the word here, they have dropped the U. Of course, when you drop the U, it is aluminum. Okay. So that was very funny for me to realize not, neither was I wrong. Nobody else is wrong. But as long as we communicate, that's awesome. So Arjun, from, now, from here, we just want to change the tone a little bit and just go into some very straightforward, simple questions where you know, all I would love is one thought, one sentence. You, know, you can add a few if you want. Are you ready? I'm, I am. Go ahead. So first is, what is your advice to anyone in any walk of life to be a successful leader? You know, the first thing I tell people is to be themselves. A lot of people try and copy other people. I always tell them, you know, when you make a copy, you're never as good as the original. Mm -hmm. So try and be yourself. Try and look for what are the... Uh, qualities in that person you want to copy and try and invite them into yourself. If you, you know, and so be yourself, try and learn from and there's something you can learn from nearly everyone. And then try and make sure that you follow, if you like what 
that person has, or you like that attribute or whatever, then try and see how you can put it in yourself. So again, how I used to do it in, uh, in HCL America basically, was I would get every person every month to on a post-it to stick up, to say the one thing I'm going to do this month to improve myself. Hmm. And it could be a simple thing like I'll attend meetings on time or whatever. And they had to put it up on their queue. And anyone in the office, if they didn't, weren't meeting that objective, could tell them about it or criticize them and tell them, hey, you said you're going to do this, but you're not doing it. And that worked really well. I love that. You know, be you, and you also showed the path of how to be you, constant improvement and accountability. And I think that advice is not just for leaders, it's for all walks of life. Even for me growing up was the same advice I got from my grandma was just be the same you. And this one I have to share because this you would love. I'd ask my grandma a very simple question. Why did you name me Arjun? Okay. And I just, the meaning of the word Arjun also is one and only. Arjun also is one of the biggest warriors, blah, blah, blah. And I was expecting some amazing answer. And when she explained to me by saying, you know, I realized you may not be the smartest person, but Arjun was the guy who always connected with the right people and asked the right questions. If Arjun didn't ask the right questions to Krishna, we wouldn't have had a lot of answers. So initially I was a little sad, but to me, I realized that being Arjun is so important that knowledge comes to you. And as I think, you know, I'm talking to you, I also realized the whole concept of how do you work with people smarter than you. And then the second part you gave me today is when they give you an answer, listen to it, because that's very important. So now next question is one thought, one sentence is how do you define a big win in the corporate world? You know, a big win, in my view, is something that you set up as a goal for your, either yourself or your team, and, that, and then you achieve that. that. The big win is the happiness that comes with achieving that goal. To me, that's the big win. Love it's that. not so much the financial part or whatever, but the happiness that comes from achieving that goal. And not all goals have a financial impact. Some of them are you know, good for the organization, some of them, you know, there are different goals that you set all the time. Uh, for example, like Pan IIT, we were worried about the reservation and how that would change the quality and the structure of the student in Pan IIT. And we wanted to get the IITs excluded from that reservation in some form. And yes, uh, we were able to partially meet that goal and uh, the IITs have found a way of making sure that they don't compromise on their quality, which was really, you know, uh, the, the, that wasn't the objective when we started. We wanted to get it just not have it, have a reservation system for them. But ultimately, what you were trying to protect was the quality and we found a way to do that. So to me, that was a big win. And so to me, I think when you talk about IITs and protecting, it just reminds me of an amazing human being both of us know and respect. Professor Sudhi Jain and Gandhinagar. So during that time when IITs were expanding, there was a lot of divided thoughts. Some of us were really upset that the brand is getting diluted. And I remember in a meeting, just before the meeting was started, pre-meeting itself, we were all very vocal. Dr. Respected Professor Sudhi Jain had told us this very simple fact is, and he had looked at me and said that, is Arjun, imagine you went to IIT, 
you just come back and all of a sudden you realize your parents have chosen to have a new baby. You'd like look at your parents, what the heck are you guys thinking? Okay. But soon you have to overcome all that and then now you have to embrace your little brother or sister because you're family. You don't have a choice whether your parents have a baby or not. And that changed. And I really think, you know, leaders show us a path and a simple story that move us to the next level. And, you know, Dr. Sudhir Jain, amazing, amazing human being, I.D. Gantinala, director. So most leaders rule out a word or something from their dictionary. Like I've worked with athletes who just take no away from their dictionary. What's a word which is not in Arjun Malhotra's dictionary? I think uh, I would say impossible. I, I've never looked at anything that is not possible, obviously within legal and you'd have some definitions in that. Totally. I've never felt that there's, that something is impossible to do. I mean, I've always felt that, uh, you know, you give, me a, you give me a problem, I'll find you a solution. You may not like the solution, uh, but I'll find within the legal norms and within whatever limitations you put, uh, there will be a solution. And I, I, I just don't accept that uh, there is no solution. So I, I use the word impossible. So if Arjun Malhotra from 2020 could go back in time and meet the young Arjun Malhotra, the kiddo, just graduated from high school, what one advice you will give the kiddo? You know, just follow your, you know, today is a little different. You get out of high school at the age of 18 or so. In my time, it was 16. And so you were still a child, if I use that term. Uh, so you listen to your parents and you followed a lot of their advice. I think at 18, you're pretty much old enough. Yeah, you should still listen to your parents, but you're pretty much old enough to know what you want and what you think you want. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. And then as you go in and the U.S. does give you that flexibility, and now the IITs are starting to do that too, is that you can then change your course. You might have, you might go in to do mechanical and then switch to electronics or you, you know, metallurgy and switch to aeronautical or whatever. But you do have that choice and you can take courses and stuff that allow you to do that. But you've got to follow your heart. You've got to, you know, and sometimes it happens later rather than earlier. And there are a lot of people who now graduate with double majors. I mean, I have a niece who did chemical engineering and environmental engineering at MIT. Because she decided she wanted to work in the environment after doing chemical for three years and then put in that extra effort and graduated with two uh, majors, so to say. So I think that's what I would tell kids today is just follow your, you know, obviously uh, there is some part of it is emotional. Try and make it largely logical in your head and try and follow that. Uh, uh, Follow your passion in a way. Whatever you want to do. I, again, I have another niece who want to do uh, production, basically theater production, went to Columbia and is now a postdoctoral research scholar in uh, bio, you know, that whole bio area, genetics and biotechnology. And so, you know, it's what you think you want to do when you're in college and what you end up doing uh, when you get, when you think you want to do when you're leaving high school and what you end up doing later in life are completely different. I mean, I wanted, I came from a family of researchers and teachers. I wanted to do research. I wanted to come to the U.S., do a Ph.D. and do research. And I ended up uh, starting a company for whatever reason. So it, it's, it's a, you know, it's, 
play, I mean, as you get on in life, you've got to uh, play the game with the cards you have in hand. You can't wish that I got a better card or I need an ace or whatever you think would give you an advantage. What you have is what you've got to play with. And that's what you've got to do. So you have to maximize the opportunity based on the uh, what you have rather than saying, I wish I had this and I wish I had that. Yes, we wish we had a lot of things. But ultimately, what we have is what we've got to use. And if I connect that to your previous, you know, talked about when you talked about nothing's impossible, I really love if I combine both is play the game with the cards you have. There's nothing impossible. Find the best solution you can within legal and all the constraints. It may not be what people like, but again, never give up. Sarjun, as you go through, you have had an incredible career from a startup to taking that to US to, you know, again, building a new concept, then with nonprofits. And I always believe that success, that is that kind of a consistent pattern, there has to be a process. There has to, like, it's not random. So is there a routine that you have, like first thing, last thing that you do during the day or when you finish your day that you want to share? Yeah, so actually, nothing, I mean, I don't think it's special. What I do when I get up in the morning is I try and plan my day. I try and plan what I'm going to do, who I'm going to meet, you know, just have a basic outline so I think I can follow it. Uh, my wife tells me I'm autistic. Maybe I am. I don't know. But that's what I try to do. Uh, and when I, before I sleep at night, when I put my head on the pillow, I spend five minutes thinking about what I did during the day. And more importantly, you know, you think of obviously what are the good deeds you did, what are the one good deed you did the day that you remember that makes you feel good. But more importantly than that, I try and think of what did I say some, you know, sometimes you say something when you're angry or you're emotional and you feel you shouldn't have said it or it got the other person upset or the other person misunderstood it completely. And at that time you didn't... Uh, take any action based on that. And I think about that and I try and tell myself that the next day I will go and apologize to say that I didn't mean, if you understood it this way, that's not what I meant, this is what I meant. And I find that works for me really well because uh, people know that uh, I, I try not to get emotional or get angry and say things. But if I do, then I do go, try and go down the next day to that person and apologize. I think that's what I think about. And those are really, again, people things you try and... Because I think ultimately, you know, let me put it this way. If you read the old Indian scriptures, and they are fairly interesting, what they say is that the only thing you leave behind when you're dead and gone are your children and your reputation. Right? And when you look at life that way, the, you know, the money and all those benefits become, seem very minor. But what is important, I think, again, is your children, because they are part of what you leave behind and your reputation. What do people say after you're dead or gone? Or what do they say behind your back? And ultimately, if you look at life that way, you'll find that you become a much better person. At least that's what I think. So thank you, Arjun. Anything else you want to share? And I also, you have mentioned a few times about your wife, Kiran. She anything you do she's always there to support you but also she's an incredible leader herself and she has inspired us at pan IIT and everything we have worked so anytime we always have a joke that anytime we work with you we are always lucky to have two incredible leaders 
all together. So if you also want to share a little bit about Kiran, I really think it would be great for us to, you know, celebrate her too. Yes, you know, I, I've got to say that uh, I became an entrepreneur. Uh, and the reason why I stayed back in India, since you asked that question, I took the biggest decision of my life when I was 21 years old with, with limited data because, you know, I'd met her. She is the sister of a good friend of mine and a batchmate from I.D. Kharagpur. And I'd met her a few times when we'd come for our summer holidays and stuff like that. But I decided uh, that uh, that was the girl I wanted to marry. I thought, uh, you know, and I think it's the best decision I took in my life. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason I stayed back in India, because obviously her father wouldn't let her get married to someone who didn't have a job, a confirmed job. So I thought to myself, I'll take a confirmed job, get a job, get confirmed within a year. A year confirmation is what they had in India at that time get married and then go to Stanford or Berkeley or wherever I was going to do my PhD and work for NASA. That was my plan. If DCM hadn't gone into electronics, I would have probably done that. But they decided to get into electronics and stuff. I found that she's always been supportive. I find that her intuitive knowledge is far, far better than mine. And so in a way, while I do argue and disagree with her and stuff like that, but I do respect that. Uh, her reading of people, her reading of, uh, you know, we go to parties and she'd tell me X is going around with Y and I'd say, how do you know? You know, I was at the same party. I was there, I talked to both of them, but, you know, and I, maybe it's, uh, it's female intuition. I don't know, but I think that. And the other thing I find is that she has played a major role in keeping, uh, you know, your senior management people, keep making the families feel they're part of the family making their families, their spouses, their children feel that they're part of a family. And, you know, I'm a little older than most of the people I've worked with subsequently. So in a way, you take on that uh, uh, advisor, senior, sister, elder, person image. And uh, that has worked really well. And, you know, it's, it's again, uh, she's also a great cook. And so sometimes that becomes a way to leverage it. She's... Uh, you know, I, she's just an amazing person. I, I don't think, you know, they say behind every successful man is a woman, and I fully agree. I mean, I don't think I would be who I am, uh, either as a person or in terms of what I've been able to do if I didn't have her support. Yeah, she has, I've got to mention, she did compromise her career. Uh, she was a teacher. She was actually uh, going to do her PhD when I moved to the U.S. She gave a lot of that up because she felt that uh, she had to support me. So in a way, I have been selfish, but uh, you know, she's just a great person. And just to build on that, Arjun, I had an incredible moment with you when Panayiti was recognizing you, but before you were being recognized, you and I both were off stage and Kiran was on stage and she was recognized first. And I saw the little boy next to me, full of love, and pride. And I really think at that moment, you didn't, you cared about the recognition you were getting. You were always humble. But for you, Kiran's recognition and the glitter on your eyes was priceless. And again, I really appreciate Arjun. Thank you for sharing that. Because at the end, you are an entire authentic human being. And that's what all of us need to be. Thank you, Arjun Malhotra. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Arjun. Thank you, Arjun Sen. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to be with you. So Have today, oh, thank you. Thank you. So today, you know, this conversation with Arjun Malhotra is literally priceless. And if I have to summarize, it may even take me longer. 
So I just want to put three nuggets in front of you that are simply wow. To start with, you know, Arjun always talks about how you work people, with people smarter than you. And then he also talked about you need to listen. Second thing, you know, he talked about how building the culture is very important. And he just compared to just like, you know, raising a little baby. And he talked about the first six to seven years, it's all about building and creating the culture because that will take you forward. And that's the part where he touched on being transparent. Like all those happened on day one because you cannot add that to your cultural values later. Another thing Arjun talked about was brilliant was if any one of us want to be an entrepreneur, we need to find out why we are doing it. It needs to come from heart, not the wallet. It's not about making money because you just can't you know, build it that way. He talked about find the passion. He talked about the passion will carry you forward. That will give you the satisfaction, happiness. And anytime there's a challenge, you will find a way. And there were quite a few incredible insights on people management. But one that really stood out to me is as a leader, Arjun talked about, I will never give, you know, want a, or, you know, give a task to anybody that I will not do it myself. Simply an incredible conversation. Thank you all of you for listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. Please subscribe, share, and review this podcast with your friends. Happy listening. And again, Arjun Malhotra, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, brand whisperer, top brand growth driver, and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. To learn more, visit www.zenmango.com. Share this podcast with your friends and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.